So I am so excited to have Mike Trees with me on this podcast. I've been following this guy obsessively on social media for many years now, and I'm not going to do him justice with this intro. Mike is a seven times Masters champion. He was a pro triathlete for 20 years, British champion, multiple champion in Japan over the Olympic distance. And he says he couldn't swim, but he actually still swam like 18 low for 1500, which is nothing to be coughed at. He holds a British record for at 52 years old, ran a 15 freaking 37 for 5K and a 432 mile. And I believe, Mike, you still hold that record, right, for the mile at 52? It just just went this year. No, it so, didn't. Who could beat that? New, new shoes. I, I put down the technology. The Nikes, <laughs> were they? Yeah, that's crazy. And I've been following Mike. I'm so excited to introduce you, Mike, because we are so aligned with all of our philosophies, with our coaching. You're just an all-round good guy. We have so much in common. We have so many friends in common. And welcome to the Back in Series Show podcast. How are you? Great. Great to be on. Yes. I, I keep telling my wife, actually, when we, we chat about you, that, that you're my sister from another mother. <laughs> I actually thought that I wanted to introduce my brother from another mother. Like, Totally. <laughs> We're so aligned. So tell us a little bit, Mikey, about your history in the sport. Like, I didn't do your achievements justice. I know I've missed quite a lot of them. But tell us a little bit about your, your greatest achievements and your history in the sport and when you got started. Well, uh, so I could go on forever. But uh, to put it, to uh, make it a bit more interesting, I, I spent all my life trying to avoid getting a real job and probably worked harder at trying to avoid getting a real job than actually getting a real job. So I just wanted to run initially. Uh, I won the British University's 1500. That set me up. I managed to get out to America, get a scholarship and run in America for a while. I came back. I'd done too much running. My knees were injured. In that time, it wasn't easy to fix them. And so I looked at swimming and cycling as rehab. Uh, picked up the bike pretty quick uh, and then I saw this crazy thing called Ironman on worldwide sports this is about 1986 and I looked at the bikes this eh, that's doable surely and the run looked easy at the time I just got to learn to swim so that's when I went into triathlon uh, and then I was very lucky in the the inaugural British duathlon championships in about 1989 I won those uh, and then I got married went off to Japan uh, and with my 1500 meters uh, title uh, and the, the, the duathlon title, Japanese love a champion. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. Nobody knows you. So I managed to get a great sponsorship in a credit card company uh, and they just taken on the J League. They were sponsoring motorsports. They had more money than they knew what to do with. So I walked in the door uh, and uh, I added a few noughts on uh, quite cheaply under my bill. Uh, and they took a couple off and it still still left me with more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and so that's where it started. Uh, and what I did was racing in Japan. They they said, look, we're going to sponsor the TV program. You're going to be the main guy. We hopefully you will win the race and we'll put all the adverts on. We'll, we'll sell credit cards. Uh, and being an entrepreneur, I said, well, look, where are you not selling credit cards? Why do we target this seriously? Let's look at where I can win. And we go there. It's good business. So that's how it started. Um, and I said, look, I will avoid the." So we said six contract races. I said, I will avoid the best people in the world that can beat me. I'll make sure I win those six races. I'll tell you where I can win. Because in those days, there were a lot of places with long runs. I'll win those races for you. And then let me race around the world a few other races just to see where I actually sit in the world. I don't mind, you know, getting beaten. So that's how it all started. And it um, went really well. And I ended up doing it until I actually, the last pro race I did was 2004 was the Olympic trials for the 10,000 meters. Uh, so I uh, came flat last in that race. 
but it's just good for me just to get back to England and uh, and prove that I, you know, to people I still could run. So I was 42 then, but I, I did a 29.32 no, uh, to qualify, nice. got into the race uh, and uh, yeah, was well um, beaten. But uh, So a 20 year career. And in that um, time, I got the second in the world, second in the world duathlon, never yeah. quite made it uh, as a pro uh, at the top. I got sixth with the best World Cup I ever did, triathlon. Amazing. So uh, I was a journeyman triathlete but uh, a big fish in a little pond in Japan, and it was a, a, a great existence. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as a cherry pick, but I mean, who was winning in those days, like back then? Because I started the sport in 96. Like, who were the big names that you were well, saying you had well, the cherry pick against? Well, it was, it was lucky. My first year, I was super lucky. So Cameron Brown came over, wow. uh, and my first race as a pro, everyone said, oh, you, you're screwed. Uh, and uh, I caught him on the run. I put three minutes into him on the run. Uh, and uh, we're standing at the scalp. press conference afterwards and everyone say, asking questions and Cam turns around and he says, Mike, I'd ask a question. How can you run so bloody fast? Uh, and so now <laughs> I turn around to everyone else and, and say, you know, Cam, how the hell do you run so bloody fast? It, it's come full circle. But Cameron and I are now best mates. We've been mates for, well, must be like nearly 30 years now. So right. I'm going to New Zealand to train with him. Miles Stewart was another one. Actually, he came over uh, and he was world champion. And yep. quite funny, his, his father, Cole, who is, who's a good mate of mine. And uh, Cole Wearle, very race, well. I trained with Cole school. too. Yeah. Oh, right. So Cole, Cole said he hadn't a clue who I was. Miles was on his world tour after just winning the world championships in uh, Gold Coast. Yep. Uh, and his father said, what, what sort of triathlete are you? And, and me being sort of quite wise, I uh, uh, said, I'm a really good swimmer, solid biker, not so good in the run. Uh, so he, his father said, it's a two-lap swim. Just sit in with Mike on the first lap and then push on the second lap. So... He sat in with me on the first lap, which was super slow for him. Then he pushed on, which, of course, I could jump on his feet by this time because he was just slowly accelerating. I came out the water with him, cycled with him, uh, and uh, he was, bear in mind, he was jet-lagged. He hadn't really clue what he was doing. He just thought he had an easy win. And he started the run with me and said, Mike, so what's your running like? And I said, well, 48 minutes, 10 mile, British champion, 1500. Uh, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, mate, but I'm going to pull out now. <laughs> oh, he did not. Yeah. No, he didn't. Ah, oh, yeah. that's sucks. <laughs> so but anyway, I got the win, uh, which Great was story. good for the sponsors. I had Cameron the same year. I then think I took Glenn Mangum as well the same year. Yeah. I had a super first year, which is possibly one of my best. I won the, the national championships, Olympic distance. No, it was middle distance that year. I won right. the middle distance national championships. Uh, and that then set me up. So uh, I did, you know, pretty well after that uh other other wins notable wins was i beat chris hill when he was the world champ junior champion uh, and i did a, a 30 48 i think it was i think that was the fastest 10k anyone had done in a triathlon at that point unbelievable but, but usually you never saw them so i would run probably the fastest split in the race but because i was Back. three minutes down in the swim let's let's be honest against say brad bevan miles hamish yeah. carter i was three minutes down in the swim they would then nail another two minutes into me on the, the bike. So I'm yep. coming off the bike, I'm five minutes down. Yep. And if I had a great run, I'd run three minutes quicker than most guys, maybe a minute and a half quicker than the, the winners. I would run up to like in a World Cup top 10 position, yep. uh, and, but never, never really seen. So uh, Rick Wells was a good one. Rick and I got on really well because it was the end of his career. He would put five minutes into me on the swim. Uh, I would put, run. Well, I would do the same time as him on the bike. And then we get the run, and I would put five minutes in him onto the run. And yep. so somewhere at the finish line, Rick and I would always meet. Either he would just get across before me, or I get across before him. So oh, yeah. we, we became good mates. So that that was the sort of era 
but I, I never got really known internationally because I, I was never on the podium. I was always just a little bit too, too slow with the running. But I realized the running was the way to make the money uh, and to survive and to make the yeah. name. And so I wrote for the 220. I helped them get set up. Uh, great friends with the, the founder, John Lilly, still keep in touch with him. Uh, and, and also uh, the triathlon magazine in Japan. And so I set up myself as the running advisor saying, well, look, I, I, you don't want to know my swimming advice. So I'm not the best. There are faster cyclists than me, but I believe that I am one of the best runners in triathlon at the moment. Therefore, I set my stall out as that. Uh, and, and I've done that when I did Instagram as well. I thought, well, yep. running's where I can make a niche. I don't want to vary off into triathlon and get watered down and things. And so I, all my coaching is triathletes, to be honest. I, don't, I think I coach one runner who's a runner only, and the rest wow. are triathletes. Wow, but I didn't know that. Running is, is where the niche is in terms of growing Instagram uh, and working, and, and that's where my expertise is. Now, but, I want to talk uh, about that real quick because you have 230,000 followers. It's insane. And every post I'm so intrigued with, it's so educational. And your philosophies are so aligned with mine. Like when you post, like it's obviously you that's doing the posting. Like, how did you become so good at this? Like, how did you know what to post? <laughs> so you, I don't know if you follow her now, uh, Natasha Bauer uh, in New Zealand. So she's, she, anyway, she just started working with her. She's a great swimmer. When she was about 18, my son went to New Zealand for a year out uh, and I was yeah. over there and he said, uh, this is about five years ago, he said, Dad, look at Natasha. She actually makes money off posting on this thing called Instagram. And I said, what's Instagram, son? She said, oh, oh it's, it's this new thing. It, it's a bit, bit young for you, Dad. You wouldn't really have a clue, but you put these pictures on and she gets paid for wearing clothes and things. She said, I'm going to build up my account, Dad, and get paid for, for doing this. Yeah. Uh, and so I said, oh, that sounds fun. I'll do it, son. Uh, and he said, no, no, you, you don't know what you're doing, Dad. It's, it's a bit beyond you. So I said, look, marketing's marketing. So long as you've got something to talk about, right. you've got a bit of a personality. And I said, what is it? You need a picture. Okay, you've got to put the picture. Make sure the picture's in focus. Yeah, we can do that. So initially, I got it all wrong, but I just played around with it and studied it uh, and worked out what was working, what wasn't, uh, and, and realized that nobody wanted a picture that I put because it, they wanted my knowledge. So but yeah. you have to have a picture uh, or, a vi or a reel as it is these days to get the yeah. name out uh, and then after that it, it, it's, it takes time just yeah. getting them out putting a few tags on uh, and making sure I think the biggest thing I did was I made sure everything was relevant to the audience and I tried to reply to everyone who asked a serious wow. question and I think that that genuine commitment has, has got the words got out that I, I really do take it seriously and it's my way of putting back I, I have made my living out of triathlon uh, and yet I was coached for free by a lot of guys down the line in running and I thought well I can't pay them back but I can pay it down the line to other people so it's my community page that I'm quite happy to to give as much information as they want and the other thing I think people get wrong with Instagram the other reason it's grown so quickly is that people say well why do you give away all the secrets they won't come for you for coaching and I say well no it's People still need advice for them. You can give every secret away in the world. Yeah. It makes no difference. Yeah, you, know, you can give it all. It's just everyone is still unique. They still have different quirks and, and questions. So uh, yeah. don't worry about giving all the information away. It, it's fine. You'll still get people coming to you for help because it, it also shows that you're genuine. 100%. You're so authentic. And that's what I loved about you, Mikey, that um, everyone obviously has their own opinion, but you are an expert. You are a leading expert in your field and you give this free advice. And it's like me, it's like, it's our way of giving back and thanking the sport. And I just, it's so refreshing to see because I don't really know anyone 
really in the sport with your accolades that has kind of built their business basically on Instagram like you have and just has such amazing rapport. And tell us how, because your philosophy is that ours are so aligned. Like I know we both are a little away from metrics. I have exercise science background, but and I like to look at numbers sometimes, but I know it's not what our philosophy is. It's always effort or uh, listen to, to listening to your body, rate of perceived exertion or effort. So tell us a little bit about your core philosophies when it comes to coaching and training and where they came from. Did you have a mentor or did you just by trial and error with your 20 years plus experience coaching Olympians and world champions? And tell us about that. <laughs> so uh, my background actually is, is why I said that you're my sister from a, another mother that I, I've done sports science. I was actually oh, lectured yeah. at, I've lectured at university in sports science. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I did that actually just because when I retired, I, I needed money. <laughs> we need to survive. So it was uh, teaching and lecturing. I enjoyed it, but it was a way of getting by uh, until we got things set up uh, independently. So I've got a sports science background, but I generally don't think that I'm that clever compared to there's a lot clever what? people like Stephen Seeler. He's going to say he's not I, fast in a minute, and I'm, then I'm going to switch off the, the whole mic. He's even as someone who I consider clever. You know, the, uh, there's a lot of clever guys out there uh, that, that I like taking their stuff and make it simple. So I, and I, my philosophy is never use a big word when a little word will do. So I explain things very simply so people understand, but adhering to the principles of sports science. I think that's what makes it so popular. Everyone can understand it. But even coaches follow me because I'm putting it in a way that – it actually still looks reasonably, you know, makes common sense. Uh, and it just says it simply as it is, but it, it still adheres to common to, to bond science. I, I love statistics the same. So I, I keep all the data, all the numbers, uh, and I love looking at all those numbers. But the trouble is the people we're coaching and, and without being too rude, a lot of them haven't a clue what the numbers what mean. And they're so obsessed with the numbers yes. that they forget what they're actually doing. Yes. So when I started running, there were no numbers. You know, I remember right. with my exactly. coach, this is in, in the 70s, we were running and he said, okay, stop, count your pulse. Yep. Uh, six seconds, we take the pulse, six seconds. He goes, no, you're not training hard enough, faster. Not, yeah. and, and that was all it was. We had no <laughs> idea what our maximum pulse was, what my pulse was no. meant to be. Uh, and, and then in the 90s, I got to work with Canon, which had the import license for Polar. Right. And this was before the five zone model had been developed. So there were no models. And it was like, how can we sell more of these units? So they had me going around and I'd race. And after the race, I'd talk to this auditorium, like a thousand people would talk about heart rate training. Uh, and Polar came up with the five zone model. Uh, and to sell more, basically, not really to help the athletes, it's just to sell more, more heart rate monitors. Still because the same one. It hasn't changed. So then <laughs> it's more data. Steven Seeler was the best. I was listening to podcasts from him and he said, look, you need a three zone model. Most people don't need five. And even now the seven zone model, it's like easy aerobic, threshold, bloody hard, top yeah. end. Three is good enough. Uh, and, he's, and then at the end of the podcast, they said, well, how do you train? You know, what sort of models do you need? I said, oh, I just run on feel. I don't really use technology at all. And I thought, excellent. He, he nailed it. He said, no, no, no. It's just, you've got to understand the feeling if you're going to run well. Uh, and that's where I'm coming back to that this data is great for me to look at an athlete and think, well, actually, I can push them a little bit more. I can do this. Yep. But I don't really want my athletes looking at the data. Exactly. I want them learning how it feels. What, you know, when I run a 5K run, you know, people say, how do you do it? Well, I go out that first K and I think this is it. This is the pace I need. And I'll be nailing them 330, 330, 331, 329. 
and you just get to a little bit harder progressively. But that's yeah. years of experience. Yes. I have people who just train totally on treadmills. Now, treadmills are great for certain things. They craft certain things. They have, mm -hmm. a, they have a place. But if you only ever run a treadmill, the treadmill sets your pace. You have no understanding of the feeling of pace. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, yeah. I, I know I'm really good at pace because I can get it exactly right on the treadmill. I said, yeah, that's not the real world. The road doesn't rotate as you run. Right. <laughs> you exactly. have to actually move. So, so that was where I, uh, I like taking the data, but then I realized I've got to make it simple. I've got people to learn how to feel how they're running. Uh, and my greatest mentor was a guy called Roy Carter in Cotman. He was the first guy, this is in the 90s, that as a pro that, that looked up to me. I turned up to him and it was back then, I don't know, 250 a session. You put some money in the pot and he'd coach you. Yep. And then one day I turned up and I got my money out. He said, no, you don't need to pay Mike. Uh, and then the next thing he said, why, why can't you win the, the national championships? And I said, well, my bike's not good enough. And he said, well, what do you need to win? I said, well, I need wheels. Uh, and he said, he said, go to the bike shop and get some wheels. And I said, I haven't got the money. And he just looked at me and said, Mike, go to the bike shop and get some wheels. And they, he sponsored me, you know, for the wheels and things. But he was always quality. You get out there, you do the quality, you rest up, you go home. And he didn't bother with heart rates or anything. He, he looked, he said, I'll tell you when you're tired, son. You know, I can look at you. I can see when you're tired. You need to feel it yourself. And he taught me to think about my body when it was tired, when it needed rested, when it needed to work. Uh, and I, I've stuck with that philosophy ever since. So uh, a long-winded answer, but yeah. It's no, it's amazing. I could listen to it all day. Um, I know with RPE, and I actually think I might be going to switch over to your philosophy because you use like a one to five, right? Like a feel. I've always done one to 10, but thinking about it much, makes much more sense to do like a one to five. Can you explain that a little bit for people that might not understand that if say they've done your programs or looking at your programs? It, it, I, I'll, I'll vary. I mean, technically we should use a one to 20. That's the bulk scale. Right. But I'm just all about making things simple, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, actually what I tend to do is with sleep is more so I'll, I'll shorten it to one to seven rather than one to five. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but you only use the bits in the middle. So say, say you're, I, I want people to feel how good they are at sleeping, not look at their bloody garment oh, that says, oh, you've had a great, great night's sleep. Listen, wake up in the morning and think one was the best night's sleep you've ever had. You're yep. just absolutely so fresh. You don't even need a cup of coffee to get going. It, it was yeah. perfect. Seven was me the day after I had the crash on my bike. I'm yeah. lying in hospital and I just think, actually, dying would be easier than this but and it was so bad and then in the middle you've got grades of it six is like you've got covid you're feeling really crap and run down yeah a two is a great night's sleep but it's, it's not the best but it's still an awesome night's sleep you're really well three it's a good night's sleep you're ahead of the curve you probably get a coffin off you go four is average and five is a little bit below and as soon as you wake up you get a feeling for it Yep. Just a little bit below par, that's a five. Oh, I'm on par, four, that's a three. And, and so then I, I could use this, this sense of feeling from the, the sleep to how recovered you are. And you just look through a diary, and at the end of the month, you see all these fours and fives. You're like, well, you're a little bit over the edge. Not a lot, but a little bit over. Or you see threes and fours. Yet you're on the edge, but you're coping. You see twos and threes. You go, So one day you don't get a good picture, but over a whole month uh, of this... Uh, sleep quality as I would call it of, of, of you you get a quality of how you're doing and the same with training I, I get people just to try and say how they're feeling you know on, on their run uh in terms of an easy run actually I tend to do more of a 10 than a five these days so okay, I think maybe you shouldn't slip over so <laughs> a, a, an easy run to me would be a three 
a three out of ten. A long run would be a five, but it's actually it starts off as a three, but it ends up as a five only because you're out there for extra time. Mm -hmm. And so once you get past an hour, you're thinking, oh, this isn't as easy as it was when I started. So knocked up to four. And just as you're dying towards the end and you're sort of a bit low on the carbs and you're a bit dehydrated and it's getting hot, it'll notch up to a five. But it's the pace is exactly the same as the easy run. This is what people get wrong. It's only a five because of the time you're out there. Exactly. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> a, a race, uh, really, so I would say a, a, a marathon race would probably start off at a seven. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, you, you don't really want to start off much further than that. And it would creep up to a nine, not because of the, the anaerobic intensity, just because everything's yeah. bloody aching <laughs> when you get through the race. Yes. And you've got to learn your own scale. So exactly. it's a scale that works for me. Uh, and so that's the other thing with this is you've got to push it back to the athlete. Me saying you're a three, you're a five, and then saying, what was it today, coach? What was it today? It's a, I don't know. You're the athlete. You've got to develop your own scale and your own understanding for your scale. Uh, and then right. you can then calibrate that with the heart rate monitor afterwards. So I'll have the heart rate data on and I'll right. look and I'll then see, oh, the heart rate was a little bit low. It was a nice low number. The heart rate was low. I must be getting fitter. Yep. Or it, it felt okay, the heart rate was high. Oh, I better keep an eye on that. Or, or now with, with the guys I'm coaching, you yep. know, they say, well, that felt okay, but I'm looking and, and the heart rate was a bit high. They haven't noticed. They could be coming down with things. Let me just double check on their quality of sleep. Oh, interrupted last night. You, you're yeah. not sleeping so well. Ah, let's just take three or four easy days just to be certain. And this is why you need a coach. You need this constant feedback. It's like, I hate. I mean, we, we do sell plans and, and they're very cheap plans, one off, off the peg that give people an idea of how to structure it. But you need a coach to work with, to interact with. And it can't be, oh, you can talk to me once a week. You have one email, three chats uh, and whatever. Yeah. It's a coach is a coach. When they say help, I have to help them. And that's my philosophy of the coach. So oh, you wow. help them come up with the ideas and, and solve the solutions. So they can just say, look, I wasn't feeling quite so right today and I'll just give them a few. I won't, I actually don't answer the questions. I throw them a whole lot of questions back yeah. when I go. Yeah, good. I say, well, exactly. how are the legs? Yeah, were you hydrated? Oh. When did you eat last? Yeah. Uh, how's the schoolwork going? So how's the work? How's the wife? You know, and give them lots of things to come up with their own solutions. So that's Unreal. how I cope. And question, do your guys wear their heart rate monitor? They obviously don't look at it. Siri's exactly the same. Like if they're wearing it, don't watch it. Just go by feel. But do you have them wear it every session or not every session? No. Once you've got an idea for it, you don't need to wear it every session. Good. I do that I, too. If I like want to look times. at it, I, I'll, get the session, I'll get them to wear it. And, and me too. I, I go out and, and nine times out of ten, I haven't got it on. Uh, but once yeah, in a while, too. I just want to double check things, I'll put it on. Uh, and then I'm talking to a couple of guys that I'm coaching on the track. Uh, youngsters and they're trying to get into good state uh, colleges you know scholarship and they're saying do you want us to wear the heart rate monitor uh, on the track and I say well once if you have to look down at that watch to see your heart rate in a 1500 meter race you're going to lose a second yes. looking at it you just they're go as hard as you freaking can and, and it, you, you if you've got enough brain power to calculate what that heart rate means in a 1500 meter race right. good luck to you i said it would be awesome if you could wear it once just so i could get the data see what it is uh, but it, it's absolutely meaningless to you uh, and will just be a distraction it'd be a restriction on the chest you don't yes. need to watch for the shouting splits out so let's let's get real uh so, yes, yeah, that's so, what I say. I, I say, you know, if you have to look to see if you're going hard enough, you're not going freaking hard enough. Like, just go yeah. hard. Like, don't look at your heart rate. You should just be pushing, yeah. like, redlining it, especially for a 1500. You can't always do that in Ironman. I know some guys wear them in Ironman, but talking about heart rate straps, and I, I'm so with you on this again. 
I have athletes that don't want to wear the strap because it's annoying and it cuts off your breathing sometimes, but they wear their, their freaking Garmin watch or whatever metrics, nothing against Garmin. They're a great watch, but they wear it and then the electricity poles interfering or another athlete's running on the same track or there's like some sort of electrics and it's interfering. And I see that yep. and I'm like 166 average for your easy run. Oh my God, that's way too high. What were you doing? Well, it felt easy. I said, well, let's not even wear it because they freak out <laughs> that they're going to Tell us about that because I know like Siri and I, that's why we're kind of against it sometimes because there's so many things without the chest strap that can go wrong. I, I so the, the new, I forgot the name of it, one that Polar does, the H2 Ted. I, anyway, it's the optical one up, up here. Right. The, the results are that it, it works quite okay with certain people. And the more I've talked to scientists, basically the further away you get from the heart, the lower the blood pressure, so the yes. less reliable it is. So a wristwatch is less reliable. And I know some people say they get great results, but I have, you know, I've got one athlete I'm coaching uh, and uh, you, he'll know who he is when he hears this, but his easy runs, he comes out with a harder heart rate than his hard runs. And I said, so there's something wrong here. And I said, you're not wearing a strap, are you? He said, no, I, I thought it'd be okay. I thought it'd be just, it would be constantly out. So he said, I thought that it might be a bit out, but just constant. I said, no, it's not constant. That's the thing. Sweat can affect it. Dust can affect it. Look, look at it the other way. If you go to the doctor, when he takes your pulse, he doesn't do it on the back of the wrist because there's not enough blood flow. He does it on the internal side of the wrist. So it, it's, it's harder to get a heart rate. And it's also further from the heart. So the nearer you come to the heart, the more accurate it is. And then when you get the chest, it's more accurate again. And so when you're I running, sometimes even your wrist, like that rhythm, you can, you can it, it gets takes cadence. that as a beat. So what happens is I, I'm the worst. I, I'll go for a run without, and, and I got them. I thought, it's great. I can actually run without a, a chest strap. And I, I initially I tried it, but it just hits my cadence. So I'm coming out with, you know, 180. Every heart rate's 180. And I think, well, at least I know my cadence is constant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we, the, the tip is, guys, wear your, wear your watch, your metrics watch to get your cadence. Perfect. Yeah. That's what yeah. it'll give you. <laughs> so I, I interestingly, it, it depends. I've been running for so long that if I do marathon training, I actually like putting the heart rate on and looking at the metrics just to pass the bloody time of day. I can right. get so in, in Tokyo, I've got this course and it, it's it's mind blowing, but uh, it, it's around a park that's 300 meters round on the inside, and then there's a little hill on the outside, and I make a, a one kilometer lap around this park, which is two and a half laps, and then I do 30 kilometers around this. Oh this God. course because it's the only place near home where there's no traffic lights there's no pollution and it's quick to get to and I thought well some, it's a mental game anyway so you just got to mentally toughen up but I actually like I'll put some music on I was to say, do you, and what are you about music do you are you a fan of using music in training only for easy runs yep. so hard training you got to focus on the training drills you focus on the drills but if if the music can help you get the beat for the drills that's okay yep. but anything from a steady run upwards, get rid of the music. It's a distraction. You need to focus on, you need to go through the metrics. When you're running hard, you need to be thinking, what, what's my cadence like? Do I need to pick it up? Am I relaxed? Are the shoulders relaxed? Am I leaning correctly? Uh, am I breathing correctly? What's, you know, and just go through, is it time to drink? Uh, you know, All those little metrics that you need when you're running hard. When you're running easy, it's great to pass the time. Uh, and, and then that's what I'm saying with these long runs. I found that looking at it, what's the heart rate doing? What's the pace doing? Uh, and it's just something to think about when I was going around. Uh, and so it made it easy to pass the time of day. Yeah. But, talk, talk to us about, 
I can't believe you're still running like 32 kilometers. It's just insane. Well, we will touch on because well, I know no, no, actually, actually more, it, it takes me it takes recently. me about half an hour to walk 200 meters at the moment with the crutches. <laughs> I was going to say because Mikey's just had a horrible accident and so unlucky, and you've been pretty lucky with injuries and accidents before this. But really talk about that because I want to talk about technique as well because we're very aligned there. But Mike, what happened? Like you're home now after 12 days with a month in hospital, which is just horrible. So I basically smashed my leg up. I broke the femur and the hip. Uh, oh. And I've got now a 30 centimeter, one foot titanium pole right down the bone marrow on the inside of the, the leg and another one going into the hip. And uh, they've told me I, sh I can't run until August. Uh, it's, and I won't be able to walk until uh, probably June. So oh, I'm on crutches. So uh, they... They said I can't swim, but uh, <laughs> I can go and do rehab in the pool. <laughs> so you're doing like swimming I'm, rehab. I'm doing rehab in the pool. So and I, I'm going, so uh, I'm, I'm getting in the gym. I'm pretty good at pull-ups at the moment. So the upper body is oh. not too bad. So uh, you, you just work on what you can do. Yeah. So my, my wow. thing is I'm big into form. Uh, and, and I got into that later in life in the sense that I wasn't as efficient when I was younger. But as I got older, I thought when I was, 37 I was trying to hit some really good times running and I realized I wasn't getting quicker so that was when I started thinking well I can become more efficient I must be so far off my technical efficiencies how can I balance up the, the, the stride a little bit more how can I get a bit more power how can I reduce the effort that I'm putting into each stride so I really got into my drills onto my plyometrics and worked on it uh, and, and I I love working with runners on getting them as efficient as possible because we can't make the engine any bigger past a certain point, but we can make it more efficient. And I believe that we're a long way off our efficiencies. So that when I get this leg back, uh, I'm going to just spend my whole time. You know, the, the, the doctor said, look, it's not going to bend much. You, you'll be strong. You'll probably walk with a bit of a limp uh, and you'll get through things, but you're not really going to do much. And I thought, well, no, I'm not going to walk with a limp. I'm going to no. sort the limp out. The bend, mm -hmm. the knee is going to bend. Uh, it is going to work, and I'm going to get back to the drills and work them. But it, it I make it sound simple, but it's hard, uh, and it, it still is every day. You've just got to work at it. So work on the flexibility, work on them, and get it into a routine that fits in your life. So that everything I do is probably the biggest thing I can say here to help people is everything I do and everything as a coach I do is I work with people's lifestyle. So I'm more than a coach. I'm a lifestyle coach. If it doesn't fit their lifestyle, they're not going to do it. So when do you have time to, to do drills? When do you feel best? You know, are, you, are you at home all day and then say the husband comes home at lunchtime or the wife comes home and you have time to get out at lunchtime, half an hour? Okay, nail that half an hour. Be strict with yourself. Get out, do the drills then. If I say go out and do drills in the evening and say, well, we haven't got baby care. We've, you know, we've, we've got to look after the kids. I've got to teach them. I've got to do the homework. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. It's not going to happen. No. So you've got to work out a plan that fits in with lifestyle. And that's what I do, first of all, with myself, because you can't help anyone else unless you help yourself. So I help myself. I get my life into order, my training in order. And I make sure that I'm in a good place. Once I've got myself into a good place mentally and physically, I'm then in a good place to help other people get into a good place. And then I'll sit down and work with them on a one-to-one -one basis on, on how they can get the things they need into their life. Usually with triathletes, it's cutting out half the things they're doing. They're doing, they're trying to oh, swim like a swimmer, stuff. run like a I do runner. yoga, then I do Pilates, and then I do gym, and I do some curls, and it's like, 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you do you do um do you incorporate like specific like gym like because here's my theory with how we coach and it's for triathlon it's it's it not and you do mostly triathletes too so they're doing swim bike run they're working full time they have kids and they're like yeah well I do three strength sessions with my trainer so I'm gonna miss my swim those two days I'm like no swim bike run is so much more important as you get older and we get perimenopausal and menopausal athletes it's important to do strength but how do you balance like should they be doing swim bike run when can they fit in or should they is drills enough like do you do any sort of strength conditioning like i know you do sports specific but in the gym and i know it does get more important as we get older as well so i do two strength sessions a week in the gym yep. uh but they don't have to take as long as you think so right i would say push-ups tricep dips body i mean i've built around the corner here we just put a pole uh, on, on the roof <laughs> so you yep. pull up yeah. and, and simple things at home yep. i can do triceps dips just on a chair at home i can get just the the amount of upper body strength i need for triathlon so little i put the paddles on uh, and i've basically got my upper body strength anyway yep, uh, a little bit core work we i make sure i do that so in the gym i can be specific yep. uh and what i need is i need hinge movements so i i i the big one that it's super popular at the moment is the Romanian deadlift, uh, you know, kettlebell swings, those are things. You can go into a gym and get those done in 20 minutes. You could even have uh, a couple of kettlebells, you know. I mean, when I go to New Zealand, it's hard in Japan, but when I go to New Zealand, I'm just going to get a couple of weights in the gym, uh, in the garage, uh, and just walk in and, and do them. It's not an aerobic session where you have to do half an hour to get the heart rate up. You just need to work those muscles. So just, yes, as you get older, it's more important. I try and do as much as I can functionally, though. So I'll get a hill, and I'd rather do bounding up a hill. I, saw that. I love that. Uh, and do butt kicks uphill. So I start yep. off on the flat, and I progress. So I'm putting resistance in. So I'm doing my drills, and I do my drills with, with resistance. I'm doing ankling to really strengthen the ankles. So it's what I call functional strength work. Uh, and then I, I'll even incorporate that into a little bit of a circuit. So I can all I need to do is take... Uh, a kettlebell and I can do some goblet squats I can do some kettlebell swings I can then run up the hill I can then do a few push-ups and make a little circuit so I, I mix it up uh, and uh, it's it's not always in the gym but uh, it, it, there is always a strength element to the training you know, put put the paddles on in in the pool so it, it's super important big gear work on the bike I mean yeah I speak in my really language Mike speak in my language I could be yeah. really good at leg press so it's being shown that if you can't do at least three times your body weight leg press, you're not going to be a good cyclist. But right. being being able to do three at least three times your body weight on the leg press doesn't make you a good cyclist because right. it's you're doing you know ten lifts. Whereas right. really you know racing, I'm going to be turning the pedals over yeah you know, no. eighty times a minute. That's mm -hmm. let's let's be honest. So mm -hmm. if I drop down to fifty reps for my hard work, so start you know 80, 70, 60, 50, Let's progressively get harder. Yeah. That's in a sense, way more time efficient than going to the gym and doing it. So if I've got a pro, I'll get them in the gym. They've got the time. If they've yep. got less time, I'll get it functional. I'll get them to use the paddles more in the pool. Uh, I'll get them to do my drills with resistance running, and I'll get them to do big gear work on the bike I love uh, or hills. Exactly so, yeah. what we do, Mike. And I saw a great one that you did for guys because we're so aligned there with the, with the run technique. Like 
And I know that some other coaches that are very well known talk about age group as, you know, trying to do heel toe because, you know, they're too slow. I still feel like you always want to be under a four foot. Like that's just for me, how, what works and what we tell our guys. And I know I saw an amazing drill you were giving a girl who was a heel striker. You had her running backwards up a hill because you really can't really run on your heels running backwards up a hill. Like that's amazing. So all, all I do is I just go out uh, and experiment myself. Uh, yeah. and there is no way you can heel strike going up a hill. <laughs> Even it. going up a hill forwards, you try and, and heel strike going up a hill forward. You can't. True. So the yeah. trouble that with people that, that heel strike is one is overstriding, which I'm 100% against overstriding. They, they land with a locked knee, yep. far too out front. They're breaking. That's a breaking force. Yes. Uh, and it's just wrong. Then mm. other people... They, they do heel strike with more of a bent knee. And I, I don't. Uh, and I, these days I accept it. But mm-hmm. I still think it's more efficient to land forefoot, midfoot. Although a lot of theories are showing that there are some really good runners who land heel striking. And it's what I call, actually, the good runners. It's proprioceptive heel striking. I mean, these new shoes, they're 40 mil thickness here. They land with the heel because the heel's so thick. Of yeah, course, they can't help it. Exactly. Heel right. And it, it's... 20 mil at the front, 40 at the back, the heel's going to hit the ground first. So it, it's almost a proprioceptive heel striking. Right. But you don't want to land hard uh, no. uh, with the heel. And the other thing that people get wrong is it gets more complicated than saying forefoot's good and, and heel striking's bad is people are landing. It's when you land and your timing's wrong and you just hear this. Boom. Yep. Absurd. Yep. You've got to think zen-like. You've got to absorb the shock before you land. That's how you should be thinking. It's it's this proprioceptive action that instant you touch the ground, you're reacting and absorbing the shock. But a lot of people haven't got the muscles. They're, they're switched off. They're sat at the desk too long. Their glutes don't fire. Their hamstrings are weak. Their calves aren't strong enough. Their Achilles aren't strong enough. If they landed forefoot, they'd be injured within a week. I agree. So yeah. although we need to guide them towards that line, you've also got to, to look at where they're coming from and what they're doing. So how do you but, transition yeah. them? Because I have this problem often. Like I try to say, like, let's get a little more midfoot first. But what's your theory on transitioning like real heel strikers to, who have got I, some I massive shin drills. Yeah. drills, without a doubt. Uh, yeah. And then I'll get them skipping, uh, just yep. rope skipping. Really Love simple it. stuff like that. Run on the spot. I'll give them a little circuit running on the spot. You run on the spot and try and land on your heels. It's impossible. <laughs> you can't. It's absolutely impossible. Uh, butt kicks. Yeah. Butt kicks. Yep. I can send you all this anytime. Butt yeah. kicks are good. Uh, yeah. high, high knee drills. Anything on the spot. Take the, sh- the other one is great. I just say take your shoes off and run. You take the shoes off and run. There is no way they'll heel strike. Why? Because it hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unreal. Uh, and then get them get them running if you can it it, it depends on the places I, I always live near the sea i get people running on the beach you know barefoot on the beach in summer yep. there's a million one things but what i do do is i'll give them maybe two days a week of that and then say the other days don't even think about it just run because you'll go crazy thinking about it all the time and transition them uh so that bit by bit they're transitioning to that without realizing it then i'll give them intervals uphill intervals because they've now built up the muscles and the new running action and hopefully their glutes are now firing because most people they don't their glutes don't fire they run from the hamstrings because they're sitting down all day so i'm rebuilding the whole the whole physique bit by bit and what do you recommend uh, normally for a beginner runner with, I know it's the same as me, but I want to hear it from your mouth, like for upper body, like give us a couple of tips on like head position, shoulders, chest, all that stuff, hips. Okay. So I start off with just it, the most important thing is before you run, and I'm, I'm actually allowed to stand now. Oh, so I'm going to stand. I'm so with you. Stand here. 
and then leans the weight is ever so slightly on the midfoot, bend mm -hmm. the knees slightly, shoulders back just a little bit so you're straight, look straight ahead and relax. And then just slightly lean forward. And as yep. soon as you lose your balance, you start running. And that's all I do to start them off. And then Beautiful. as you lose your balance, just slowly run forward. And I just Beautiful. get them doing that. Run forward, come back. And then what I'll do is I'll pull them up and I'll say, what did you do wrong? Uh, uh, you look down. So most people, when they start running, they'll look mm -hmm. down. And then all of a sudden, they're hunched up and they're running at the ground. So whole body lean. You just ever so, and, and the quicker you go, the more you lean. But just ever yeah. slight lean. When gravity takes you, then you start moving. Mm -hmm. And that's all you have to do. And then from there, we can progress and add little drills on. We can add some, some butt kicks just to get used to... Uh, lifting you know, butt kicks you tend to come down on a, on a nice forefoot so we're not running fast forward we just make sure you're hitting the butt coming down then i'll do high knee drills and so yeah you then say these aren't actually high knee and butt kick you don't do that when you run i know that's what people say yeah but then i combine them into what i call a combination one which is a butt kick and high knee at the same time because you oh. look at the world's best runners and basically that's what they're that's doing what they're you doing all the they, they, yeah. They're bounding, the rebound is bringing their leg up. So they're hitting their bum and the knees coming up at the same time. So a combination drill is really hard to do, but then I'll do that and then get them to run back afterwards and, and, and gradually progress. And always after I've done a drill, I'll get them to run naturally because you have to incorporate it. So there's no point in getting good coming in. There's no point in getting good at a drill, but not being able to incorporate it at the running. Uh, and I, I see that with swimmers. They, they're great at chicken wing. They're great oh. at catch up but they can't put it together in a swim. So you need to make sure that you do a drill and then you run naturally afterwards. Do a drill, run naturally. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. But too much, it, there's, there's brain overload. So you can't, you can overload people with drills and doing too much. Yeah. I, I would say the best runners can transition in six weeks uh, wow. from heel striking to four foot. The worst runners will never do it. Never. So you say, what's the scale? If you don't think about the process, you'll never really change. But it, it's a process from never to six weeks. And, and most people are in the middle, three months to six months. Uh, but you've got to remember, if you transition, your calves will tighten up. 100%. I've always, my, my demise was my calves. I would get, as soon as I got one calf strain, Brett Sutton gave me this session on the track in Thailand. I was running amazing. I was running like always three hours off the bike. And then he used to give us these 32800s. That was the Kenyan sets, 32800s with 200 float. And we'd have to hold just like, 345k pace and I just do ticket over like it became easy for me and then one day he's like we're gonna do 52 of them I was wow. like shit but we had we could do a 26 in the morning and 26 at night and I smoked it I was with Nicola Spiri Olympic gold medalist doing them with mm. her and she only had to do half and we did the same pace and he said right Beck, the last 200 I just want you to go for it try and crack 30 oh. and I've never cracked 30 in my life for 200 I didn't have speed and I think I just got the 30 and then boom my calf went and I was like, I've done my calf. And he said, you're fine, you're fine. I said, no, I've done my calf. He's like, keep running. So I shuffled through days in Thailand, shuffling with this calf strain, never the same since. And that was kind of my my, my typical injury was like a calf strain. So, so tell us, because a, a lot of our athletes get injured. Like, Mike, what are your tips for, well, first I want to know your calf strain tips, <laughs> how to prevent it and how to get it better. But what are your tips on, on staying injury free? But in particular for me, because I'm kind of obsessed with this and a lot of my athletes get it, like calf strains, anything you can advise on so, that? Ankling is a big one. Uh, so what, what I is do it? is I get an ankling. I, oh. I get a, a hill and you're pushing off literally 
from the ankle only. So you're trying to move by just moving your ankles, not using the glutes or the, the quads or any other muscles, just the calf and the ankle and just to push off. And you're running. Uh, I'll send you a, a video. So it's uphill, huh. ankling, and it's springing. It's, a, it's, it's not my session, it's a Lydiard session. Uh, it's a classic mm -hmm. Lydiard. And he would get his athletes doing ankling uh, and he said, none of my, my athletes have Achilles problems because they're so bloody strong by the time we finish these, these programs. Any kind of uphill running on your forefoot will strengthen the calves. But there's overload. You can do too much. Yeah. So you, you did exactly what, uh, what I did. Uh, so this is back in oh, the 90s. I was trying to do a, I never actually got to do the, the marathon this race, but I was, I was looking for a 219 marathon. And I was doing, I did 5,400 and I was floating them all in about 73, 74 seconds. Yeah. But uh, between 40 and 50, it was just overload. It's like you with the 200. The, the calves just locked up uh, and yeah. locked up and locked. But during the session, the adrenaline gets through, you get through. Oh, I got through the whole session. But after the session, I was, oh, these are really bloody tight, really tight. Uh, and it, it took a couple of months for them to loosen up. They just absolutely locked up solid. Uh, and it was just, too much of a good thing and this is what people tend to do is you need to do some work to strengthen it but the the, the work the the skill is working either with yourself or with a coach to know when to pull out when enough is enough so you've got to get the quality in uh, and you've got to get the recovery in uh, and uh, and that is the the, the the real difficult balance and i think a lot of with, with the stuff that i coach online uh, at the moment people have got the wrong impression they think that all i talk about is easy training oh follow mike he talks all this easy aerobic training <laughs> so what i mean is most of it is easy and enjoyable but when, when i go hard, hard you know this when we go hard we you nail it uh, and i don't think people realize when i say hard what i mean by hard is you know i mean you know you you really are your stomach's in a knot at the end and you really are struggling to breathe it's like whoa whoa just give me a few you know you can't talk you can't do anything you just have to relax and get it back together they don't realize what i mean about hard and so we can destroy ourselves that is the problem so when you do these drills you've got to be strict and not feel good and add a few extra on if anything i remember before my best race that i finally got my act together it was about well not what it was what it was in 1995 it was a, a an asian cup i think it was then I, uh, I i won it and i, I again i ran a sub 31 10k off the bike Amazing. the week before I was doing some mile reps on the track and I had six to do and I did the first four in 440 and I just stopped and I said no I no. can't get any quicker I'm fit the next next two could be the two that injure me and I actually pulled out earlier and ran really well after that and since yeah. then I've always erred on the side of caution of just pulling it back and pulling it back and with my athletes as well just making sure that they stop feeling good uh at the 100%. point and, and your example i'm going to use that as well it's a classic example of this progressive overload that you just that piece of straw that breaks the camel's back just one too many but going back to the initial thing ankling is great even you know if you go to the gym i mean you can do calf raises they work but i'd rather do it in situ while running uh a bit of barefoot running is actually brilliant so i i will get a grass uh, thing and warm up 800 meters warm up maybe even do 800 meters at the end when you get strong so you're doing you know a mile there you know start the session at the end of the session it's going to strengthen the calves it's going to strengthen the achilles uh and you're going to learn to to land correctly and proprioceptive landing hey i have one more question because i could talk all day like we're going to have people chiming in on what shoes does he wear i've had people ask this like what's your go-to and I'm like, similar to you, what's your go-to for the long, easy runs? And what about your speed runs? Like, what are your go-tos? 
My go-to used to be Brooks Ghost. Uh, I won't take sponsorship off a shoe company because then I'm forced to wear their shoes, whether good or not. So I, I, so when I give my shoe opinion, it's my opinion, not not my sponsor's opinion. Right, and it's based Uh, on the athlete, right? Not like yeah, yeah. And everyone is different. At the moment, I actually really like the Hocker Rincon, Uh, and I I run that for an easy run because it's super light, uh, and it's it's not too much of a build up. Uh, it's it's got enough cushioning. I don't feel that it's altering my style in any way. It's a nice. The Clifton's for me feel a little chunky. They're, they're too chunky, too heavy, too much give. So you probably get problems with your Achilles in there as well. You just okay. it, feel, it feels yeah. that it just absorbs too much. It forces you more onto your heel because the way it is. Yeah. So the Rincon. How do you spell the that? Mark? R-I-N-C-O-N. Ring right, con. I think it's a pair. Ring con getting a pair because Mike Tree said to. What about, what about for it's more a, speed it's a, firmer, it's a firmer shoe. Yep. So my go-to for speed work in training at the moment is actually the Fuel Cell 2, New Balance. Uh, and balance. every time I post that, Alex Yee comments, yeah, yeah, because Alex is sponsored by them. So he's always like, yay, Mike. New Balance, go, go, go. What uh, is it? Do you say it again? New, New Balance Fuel? New Balance uh, RC, uh, fuel cell two. Fuel cell two. two. Yeah. I'm going to try them. I'm like an Adidas Boston girl right now for the, anything where I'm trying to go solid. I don't run that fast anymore, but I just, I like to feel the ground. I don't like to feel like, it's uh-huh. nice to feel on clouds when you're running easy, but I want to feel the ground. I want to feel that ding, ding, ding when I'm hitting the ground. So yeah. Awesome. And, uh, then racing, I've gone through them all. And literally, the uh, Vaporfly is still the quickest at the moment for racing. Uh, I, I don't like them, and I feel that they're too unstable around the heel and, and the back collapses. It, it definitely is a four-foot running shoe, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not something you want to be doing much training, and you need to do enough to get through in the race, but it, it, it is quick, so I, I use them for that reason. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're my three at the moment. Love it. Mikey, this is amazing. Now, everyone's going to want to know where to follow you. Where do they find you on social media? Can you tell us your so, at? Yeah, it's, uh, it's inst- I, I stuck everything on Instagram. I do have a, a, a coaching one on Facebook, but Instagram is my main one and it feeds to, Insta, uh, to Facebook. So it's run at nrg. Run at. Uh, no, it's not .com. Run at. Nrg. So at run.nrg, social media on Instagram. Okay, I'm going to. So say it again so everyone gets it because we're going to be sending this out. So it's, it, it's at right first, always it's for instance. At, yeah, and then it's run, R-U-N dot N-R-G for energy. It's only got a quarter of a million followers, you guys. That's it. But so it, should, it should come up. Quite, oh, you just put Mike Trees in. That comes up. I just typed in legend and it came up. So try that. <laughs> Mikey, Actually, you're amazing. Spotify now. I was like, what, what amazed me? I put Mike Trees in Spotify and it comes up on Spotify. Of oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, it's such a pleasure. You're amazing. And I feel so honored that you actually want to be on my podcast. I was like, well, thank you on yours, but I'm so honored. Well, no, no. We, what we're doing is I'm doing another round with Darren. So we've got uh, the Darren Trees and Lakes, we're calling it, because I thought it sounds quite nice, Trees and Lakes. Uh, we've got our podcast and we're just doing another what we're going to do is a series of 10 quick fire podcasts we're playing around to see what works and the next one is just like short ones short and fast 15 minutes pick a subject heel striking uh nutrition whatever and then after that we're going to go through 
different legends I'm going to get, you know, people on. And you're first on the list, so don't worry. You're oh, coming no, on. embarrassing. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to ask you lots of questions uh, about your Ironman racing because, yeah, you're, you're a legend as well. <laughs> but uh, hopefully all what, your followers What's the podcast know. called, Mikey, if they want to find it? It's uh, Trees and Lake. Trees and Lake. Trees and, it's actually Trees and D Lake. It is Trees and D Lake. I like that guy. Awesome. But if if, if you go, he's great. Darren's awesome. Uh, but basically, you go to any any of those medias and just put in Mike Trees, uh, and the podcast has come up. Unreal. Thank you, Mikey. You're amazing. That was so awesome. Okay. No, no. Thanks very much.